Pedersen rims it around the end boards for Ilya Mikheyev near side. Back to the line for Hirona, cutting into the slot to the back door. Pedersen scores! Denver's unreal. Their goalie was played great. Um, yeah, it was kind of a back-and-forth type of game, but but I think it was a structured game by both teams. I mean, there's a few mistakes by both teams, but I, in all, I thought it was a well-played structured game by both teams. 7.05 on a Monday. Happy Monday, everybody. I hope you're well. You're listening to the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Halford & Bruff in the morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are in hour two of the program. Open segment here. Hour two is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling. They recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. So this is Sportsnet 650. This is your home of the Vancouver Canucks. And we have a very pressing question about the Vancouver Canucks that we're going to try and answer over the next 20 minutes. Are they... Good. (laughs) I ask because currently the Vancouver Canucks sit third, third in the National Hockey League. There's 32 teams, third in the NHL with an uh, eight, two and one record and 17 points. They have the best goal differential in the entire league. Not even the Vegas Golden Knights can boast Vancouver's plus 26 Goal differential. The losers, the Vegas Golden Knights. Vegas, Vegas, Vegas couldn't even match the Canucks plus 26 after they smoked the Avs 7-0 over the weekend. It's true. Well, they fell back to earth losing to the Anaheim Ducks, who actually are better than I a lot of people expected. That's not the point of this conversation. Canucks have 48 goals for. That's the second best in the NHL. They have 22 goals against. That's also the second best in the NHL. They are a wagon, Maybe. And I'm saying all this not just as a homer broadcaster and your home of the Canucks Sportsnet 650. There's other Sportsnet people and aren't even in Vancouver that are saying this. We have Elliot Friedman from the weekend because Freed's really set everything on fire. The internet, television, everything. Uh, when he went on following the 2 nothing win over the Dallas Stars and said this about your Vancouver Canucks. What do you no, think about the Canucks win tonight? You know, I, I, first of all, they're Canada's best hope right now. They they are the only team in the country that is playing not even to its potential, but beyond its potential. But it's been the same it's story. Three weeks in. I know, but still, look look at some of the other situations. But again, the only team where the best players have been consistently great. Every single one of them has been excellent game in and game out. So I was, I was ready to jump in there. I'd be like, Kelly Rudy, man, just let him cook. Let him cook. We're don't three interrupt weeks him. In. Yeah, don't interrupt. Let the man cook. Shut up, Kelly. Yeah. Go three weeks in. <laughs> yeah. Adam uh, in the Ridge. I want to read a couple texts and then we'll uh, sure. discuss this question of are the Canucks good? Uh, Adam in the Ridge. Adam in Ridge texts in. Remember when everyone was mocking the Canucks structure marketing campaign? Similar to Devils fans booing Lindy Ruff last season and then after seeing results that followed apologizing. We're sorry. Structure does sell. Uh, Al in uh, PG. Can you please compare Boudreaux's first 20 to 30 games with the Canucks to the first 20 to 30 games for Tockett? How do we know this is not just a talk it bump akin to the Boudreaux bump. Um, 
It's a question that a lot of people are wondering, right? Are the Canucks for real? Um, Personally, for me, with regards to that Boudreaux thing, I think there's a couple things that leap to mind. Um, Just eye test. I didn't trust the way the Canucks were playing under Boudreaux, right? It just looked like they were not playing that type of like... You know, the, the staples that talk, talks about, right? Just doing the right things, being on the right side of pucks, managing the game, etc. I also think, and if you don't buy that, I also think that Boudreaux had the advantage of coming in when there was no pressure. That's true. Right? Like, he came in and the Canucks were like, they just needed someone to give them a pat on the head and be like, you're okay. It's not your fault. Well, I mean, it is your fault. But it's not your fault. But it's not your fault, right? And then they were able to take a lot of teams... By surprise, you know, the, talk it, this Canucks team, what's been almost doubly impressive, in addition to the fact that they have a great record and an unbelievable goal differential, is they came into this season with the pressure on. Mm-hmm. The pressure was on this core group. Demko called it do or die. All the players, the new captain, Quinn Hughes, was saying, we're all sick of losing. Okay, we'll prove it. Mm-hmm. You know, when Boudreaux came in, the team was done. The Canucks were an afterthought in the league. Right, Boudreaux was a good story for a bit, but you know, I, I I'm honestly not just parroting the management speak here. But when they said like, it's not a it's the the way they're playing under Boudreaux is not conducive to winning, I agreed with them, right? And it was tough because everyone likes Bruce. I like Bruce. I love having him on the show when we talk to him. But you you be honest, be honest. Did the Canucks look like a well-coached team under Bruce Boudreaux? Well, now do they look like a well-coached team under Rick Tockett? So going beyond the eye test, which I think is a valuable um, tool to utilize here, because they do look significantly better. They pass that eye test. I mentioned this off the top, and I'll reiterate it. I've actually gone out of my way to see what opposing coaches have said about the team. Now, look, I'm not dumb enough to think that a coach is going to be like, ah, they're not that good, or be honest. Every mm-hmm. coach is going to be. Overly complimentary because it's the easy thing to do and you don't want to piss off an opponent. And I think they like talk. I think they like talk. That's another part of it, too. However, there are nuggets to be taken away when they get down to the actual minutia and what's going on, as opposed to, Mm -hmm. like, oh, they're, you know, a really great opponent. They skate really hard. Talk's got them playing hard. (laughs) I think it's important to note that several coaches, including Andrew Burnett and on the weekend, Peter DeBoer, have gone another way to say, Man, they really don't give you a lot of time and space out there. And I have noticed that the Canucks are very comfortable. You know those stretches in games where not a lot happens? Teams are basically trading shifts where it's pucks in deep. And let's not give up anything here. Maybe we won't create on this shift, but we're not going to give anything up. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to trade it back and forth. It's almost like trading of possessions. You know? there's tra- It happened against Dallas. Yep. And that's when you start to hear the cliches like, well, we're seeing a real skating game right now. Or, you know, they're not giving up anything through the neutral zone. It's because they're barely playing in it. They're not going east-west. It becomes a north-south game. And that's how you end up with a game where you get a 27-save shutout. Like, Dallas in the previous couple of games, we didn't really mention this at all, but Ottinger and Wedgwood had close to 50 saves in the wins that they had. Mm-hmm. They were giving up a lot of chances. Well, Edmonton poured it on big time in the third because Dallas had the lead. Ed- Dallas had nine shots the, in the, the third. The Canucks pe- had the lead too? They, and they gave up nine shots, Yeah, right? So there's a decided difference in mm-hmm. how the team is playing. Um, now, someone pointed out that the opposition hasn't been the stiffest thus far. I'd push back on that a little bit. 
the Canucks handled Dallas very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they faced a very good Rangers team. I don't even consider that a loss. The overtime, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. I, I don't know what to tell you, but it was awful officiating in a game where the Canucks basically went toe-to-toe yeah. with a Rangers they team played that's, well. that's a top-five team in the NHL. Like we're we're just asking the question: Are the Canucks a good team? We're not we're not asking: Are they a Stanley Cup contender? At least I'm not. We're just asking if this is if what they're doing right now is real, and we can expect the Canucks to make the playoffs. And my only answer is like: If they're not a good team, they're certainly doing a very good impression of a good team. Now, um, I, again, not house of negativity, but house of reality. There's a few things. That we all have to be prepared for. One, injuries. Health is going to hit this team. Mm-hmm. It always does with every NHL team. The fact that the biggest um, the biggest lineup issue that they've had is that they don't have Teddy Bluger, who's like a 3C, 4C. Other teams are dealing with much more catastrophic injuries. I'm not saying it'll get to that level, but this team will go through a spell where guys get banged up. Well, How are they going to respond to that? Okay, so I was thinking this yesterday. What does a good team have? Well, I think it starts with the star players at key positions, right? You want great centers, you want great defensemen, and you want a great goalie. The Canucks have Elias Pettersson and JT Miller as their top two centers. They've got Quinn Hughes and Philip Peronik as their top pair. And they got Thatcher Demko in goal. I think you can check off key players or star players at key positions. Mm-hmm. Um uh, are they willing to put the work in? And that comes down to culture. And I think right now we're seeing a dramatic turnaround in the culture, in the vibe, and the um, you know, like just the just the feeling around the team. There is a sense of optimism around the team. The guys are talking about we're sacrificing for each other. Are they well prepared by the coaching staff? I think we got to be able to check that one right now. Mm-hmm. Who has any problems with the coaching that Rick Tockett is doing right now? The last one I come to is depth. And, I, and I'm and i not willing to check that one quite yet because of the issue that you just brought up. Maybe that's where you're not so quick to say, oh, yeah, yeah, they got lots of depth too. Despite the fact that guys like you know Sam Lafferty um, have come in and, 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 and played well and we're seeing contributions from the bottom six, for me... It's like, what if Hughes or Corona go down? Mm-hmm. What does the team look like then? Um, I think also just given the past few seasons, we all just Great. need to see how they're going to react when they face adversity. Bingo. They had they had kind of a test with the Philly game. There was adversity, right? In that people were ripping them and they played badly and like the bad vibes could have in theory taken over. And they passed that first test really well. But I'm talking about like not just like a bad game in Philly. I'm talking about like what happens if there's a big time injury. Even Talkit was talking about this after the Stars game because I feel like Talkit wants to be positive about the start, and he wants to um, you know say all the good things that that are happening and, mm-hmm. and and be proud of the group and 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 you know see say all the things that we're seeing right. But in the back of him, his mind, too, he's like, yeah, it's been 11 games, and we still have a lot to prove. Here's Rick Tockett after the Stars game. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things, like how do you handle prosperity and all. So honestly, I got to give guys credit. I know I keep saying it, but 
every day is a new day. You know, we got to earn our day. You know, be careful we don't read our press clippings, all that stuff. You know, we got to try to be even keel. Um, you know, that's the sign of a good team, right? Uh, whether it's, you know, having a game like San Jose or, you know, having a bad game and coming back, it's the same thing. And it's, you know, we're an even keel team. And, uh, you know, a lot of hockey games left. We're going to be tested even more. So we have to handle these ebbs and flows of the season. And right now, we're, things are going our way. This, you know, some things are going our way, and we got to make sure that we deal with the stuff that doesn't go our way, too. And uh, it's going to happen. It's 82 games a season. We just got to be ready for it. So through the, the 10 game mark, I've been impressed with Tockett's ability to address adversity because that's what we talked about how you deal with adversity on two occasions. One was after the Philly game where he lit into him, right? He did not try and beat around the bush. Remember, there were a lot of people saying, this feels really harsh from a guy whose team just won two games against the Edmonton Oilers. Mm-hmm. Like, why the negative? But the negativity from the coach was justified because he wanted to keep the bar high. The second instance was when he benched JT Miller. And I think both examples are um, indicative of a guy that can see when the ebbs and flows are happening and wants to nip it in the bud and doesn't want the highs to get too high. And more importantly, the lows to get too lows. Because I think he understands that historically with this group, when things go off the rails, they go off the rails in a major way. Do you remember when Tockett said after the Philly game, who are we to think we're anybody? And he didn't have to do it. He's he's still in that he's still in that uh position and rightly so. Like you guys haven't done anything yet. No, but you've had a that- good start to the season. That's it. Who do you think you are? I am. Yeah, that was, that, that was him. That was Rick Tockett. Yeah. Who are we to think we're anybody? I am. Yeah. He didn't say that part. But I, I get what you're saying. I think it's interesting from a coaching perspective because it would have been easy mm-hmm. for him to be like, flat night, didn't have it tonight, we move on to the next, we get Tampa Bay on Thursday or whatever. You know? It was, you're on the road, you're, you're, you're in a different time zone. You remember they started really early? It was a 3 o'clock game. I bet the nap schedules were all messed up. <laughs> so you could have gone to that. Yeah, You didn't have to bury them, but he did. And I was a little skeptical at the time. I'm like, I'm not sure how this is going to work out. It's curious. And... That's the M.O. We have a standard. I'm going to hold you guys to it. I being Rick Tockett, not me. I have no standards. And this is how the this is how we're going to do things moving forward. Then he followed it up with a very public, albeit brief, benching of one of his star players because Miller lost the plot. Mm-hmm. And he's like, this ain't going to fly. We do have a standard here. It doesn't matter if you're J.T. Miller or Sam Lafferty. Yeah. If you lose your mind, even momentarily... I'm going to make you be accountable for it. Those are important things early in the season, right? You have to you have to set a bar early, and you have to hold all the guys to it early so everyone knows after 10 games, it's like, okay, this is how we're doing business. You don't wait till game 40 to send the message, I guess, is what I'm you saying. You know, I was thinking about this the other day as well. Um, I'm not saying that you need to play in the NHL have to have played in the NHL to be a head coach. I'm not saying that. John Cooper is one of the best coaches in the NHL right now. Scotty Bowman might be the best coach of all time. But in this particular case, do you think the fact that Tockett played in the NHL, was a very good player in the NHL, was tough as nails in the NHL, um, do you think that helps him get the message through 
of these staples that he's delivering, whether it's like winning puck battles or meeting pressure with pressure. Do you think that helps when he's saying that as opposed to some of the other coaches they've had in the last little while? Yeah, I think it's, but it's so it's hard to say because like Travis Green played a thousand didn't games. Play a in talk, the didn't play at Tockets level. No, but he played a thousand games practically in the NHL. Like it's not like, and he had friends all over the league, yeah. and you know, and Boudreaux played forever, and and had friends all over the league. So I guess there's something to it. I'll say this: um, that the type of things though that the Canucks are trying to do. Well, I'll tell you, no, I think I, having a personality like Talkit helps because if he tells you to do something, you're like, all right, fair enough. You did those things too. I'll say this. He's definitely made it a point of saying his communication style with players and the way that he builds relationships with players is, is I think it's a lot different, right? In a lot of ways, it's funny because everyone considers him classic old school throwback, but you listen to how yeah. he approaches it. He's actually not. No, he's, he's very not. modern thinking yeah. in terms of his relationship with the players. That's why he was the Phil Kessel whisperer. Was he was able to get through to him on a level that other coaches weren't? Sullivan, I actually Mike heard, Sullivan was like, just deal, deal with Phil. It's, it's, it's funny. The uh, talk it was on with uh, Kipper on Bourne mm-hmm. uh, in the last few days, last week, and they asked him about the response question because they were talking about the Leafs having no response against the Bruins. And you would think like talk it would be like, yeah, I want to see a response there. I want to see like I don't know like. A fight or something like that. But Taka was like, you know, the response, like the, he, and he was talking to Kiprios, you know, tough guy to tough guy. He's like, Kipper, we all know like the league isn't what it like was anymore, yeah. 25 years ago. And he was talking about the response I'd like to see is you get on the power play and you actually, you know, dominate on the power play. Mm-hmm. Or you just, you know, you just make, you make, t- like you play hard. You don't necessarily have to go out and fight, but you have to play hard. You have to compete for pucks. Now, uh, I do want to say this, and Laddie, feel free to jump in because I'm sure you'll love this analysis. It's very old school, but show me a good goalie and I'll show you a good coach. I don't think that we can understate how significant Thatcher Demko's health and performance have been to this start. He has six wins from eight games. He has two shutouts. He has a 947 save percentage and a goals against below two. That save he made against old Wyatt. Wyatt Johnson. Was like that's the type of save that you get from a star goalie. When the game is scoreless, you can go either way. He makes that save. The Canucks the Canucks weren't terrible in the first period, but they weren't perfect. And he made a number of saves um in a game that was probably going to be a low scoring game. And you know, it was a huge difference in the game. It allowed the Canucks to find their game. It allowed the Canucks uh, to get a 2 two nothing lead heading into the third period. And then I think both were at play. Yes, you had a good goalie in Thatcher Demko, but you also had a Canucks team that was taking time and space away from the Dallas Stars. Laddie? Is this my chance to talk about the save? Go. Uh, it's The least interesting part of that save to me was the glove save part. Do tell. It was everything else. It was the skating involved with going back and forth the way that he did and getting an edge and being able to stop his progression and go back the other way. Mm. He's a huge body, and to be able to do that at the speed that he did it, this players like that don't exist. They don't exist. I think sometimes and, I forget that Dem- <laughs> Demko's 6'4". Yeah. Sometimes I do. To stop all his yeah. momentum and he's get an edge human. and go yeah. back Thatcher the other way. Thatcher is not a tall name. Yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's a big dude. And I, you know, I was... 
It's incredible what he's doing. Like it's and to, for the salary that he's making, like this is so huge for the well, Cubs. T- yeah, so ta- huge. Talk it also very routinely. He's like, "Yep, he's he's great. Denver's the best." Like he knows what he's got, mm-hmm. and I he's not dismissive of it. But I think he just he's like, "I am a very fortunate head coach to have a elite, healthy netminder." And then Dismith's been really good too. But Demko's been. You know, it's funny when Elliot tries to contextualize it as all the star players are playing great. You have to like for me right now, it's Pedersen, Hughes, Demko all competing to be team MVP. You know, like I think a lot of people would say, well, Pedersen's leading the NHL in scoring. You know, Hughes is playing at a Norris level. Yeah, well, if they don't have Demko doing what he's doing, they're nowhere close to this. And, and this is why they thought it was okay to have just Spencer Martin as the goalie backing up last year because they thought this is what they would have with Demko, right? The, the backup goalie would be an afterthought like it is this mm-hmm. year, but didn't turn out that way last year. All right, we've done our best to not talk about the Seahawks, but we're going to have to. Briefly, you know what? Briefly. I've only got one question for Mike Tanner, and it's can we forget the Seahawks game? <laughs> Mike Tanner is going to join us next for a little NFL talk on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. The most opinionated Canucks show out there. Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Third down and 21 for Gino. Drops back, steps up, ball comes out. He gets hit from behind, and the Ravens recover. Kyle Van Noy again. Seven thirty-two on a Monday. Happy Monday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet six fifty. Halford Bruff of the morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Accurate Dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Accurate Dealer today. Uh, Mike Tannier, our Monday morning quarterback from the Messenger, is going to join us in just a moment here. The highlight of our two. Tell you what wasn't a highlight. Anything involving the Seahawks yesterday. Hour two of this program is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. Just to give you an idea of how bad Seattle's, wait for it, 37-3 loss to the Baltimore Ravens was yesterday. Uh, The Seahawks... (laughs) The Seahawks had six first downs, six in the entire game yesterday. They were outgained in yardage, 515 to 151. (laughs) Baltimore had the ball for 40 minutes and four seconds yesterday. It's unbelievable. That was the worst loss the Seahawks had suffered since losing 42 to seven to the Rams back in 2017. So I cannot even begin to tell you how bad it was. I let the numbers do the talking, and now we'll let our next guest do the talking. Mike Tannier from The Messenger, our NFL insider here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, it could have been, what, 44-3. to The Ravens end the game just kneeling the clock out at the end of a long drive. I'll tell you, I love – I was in a tavern where I often watch the one o'clock game so I can have five TVs at once. Mm-hmm. They flipped off of the, uh, the Raven Seahawks at 30 to three. So I actually did not have a sense of, and I, and I didn't go chasing down any information after that because I, I got the point of the game. I had no idea just 
how far the Seahawks unraveled at the end of the game where, you know, a lot of teams, you know, they get that garbage time touchdown or they, they, they get a little dignity at the end. And, and the Seahawks had absolutely none of that at the end of that game. Normally I'd be focused on the Seahawks here and I kind of am, but um, we've talked a lot about Geno Smith and his turnovers and they need to be better. And it's kind of the same old story. I, I do want to talk about the Ravens. Like that team could win the Super Bowl, no? Yes. Yes, they can. I mean, they have that uh, Steelers loss at where they dropped about eight passes. Like two of them mm. were touchdown passes from Lamar Jackson to Aguilar. I think the rookie Flowers dropped one. And, and that game snowballed against them. And, you know, in most circumstances, the Ravens win, win that game. If the Ravens win that game, they're what, 7-1, and 8-1 and one right now? No one would be questioning how how good a team they are. It's a, a team that has a former MV, MVP kind of, uh, winner at quarterback. Um, but because they're seven and two, because the early season losses look bad on the stat sheet, I think we're losing track of how strong they are top to bottom. What so, is what is their biggest strength? That's hard to say. You know, their defense has been very good, particularly in the front seven. Lamar Jackson has been very efficient, yet still runs the ball effectively. The new offense looks very good. Um, they seem to do everything well, except that they fumble every once in a while in like the worst possible circumstances. And that actually happened twice against the Seahawks and the Seahawks could not capitalize when, when the Ravens went on their little fumble spree there. So it's kind of like the Ravens have really almost always been under Harbaugh going back to when it was, you know, Flacco and those guys, it's just, you know, when a guy gets hurt, the replacement plays well. When they need to put last year's third-round pick in, suddenly he's a guy. You know, Geno Stone comes out of nowhere after three or four seasons, and he's, like, leading the league in interceptions. The offensive line, you think that they're banged up. The next guy comes in and plays well. It's that kind of team. We just lost track of that in the last year or two because Jackson would get hurt. So many guys would get hurt that they were throwing guys off the street out there, and they were having a hard time staying even in the wild card chase. Uh, so I was listening to the post game show right here on Sportsnet 650 afterwards, and they played. They went live to Pete Carroll from the podium, and he sounded like kind of stunned and shocked at what happened. <laughs> and then, in, in typical coach speak, he's like, "You know, we got to focus on next week. We got to get better. We got to improve. We got to go to the tape." My question is, when you get a measuring stick game like this, and for sure, because that, that was the toughest challenge that the Seahawks had this year, all due respect to Cleveland and, I guess, Detroit in Detroit. That was going to be their toughest game, and that was going to be, you know, where do you match up against an elite team in the NFL? When you fall that short and you get blown out that badly, can you really just say, we'll go back and we'll correct the correctables, or do you have to take a look and say, <laughs> maybe we're not as good as we think we are, or maybe we're not as good to compete at that level? Yeah, you know, coaches don't operate in season at that macro level. Okay. They simply don't. They can't. They, they would lose their mind. So would their assistants. So would people in the building. That's something that, you know, at the Schneider level, at the ownership level, say, well, what are we going to do about this? Carol can turn around, look at the commanders and say, oh, they just traded away all their guys. We should be able to get that win. Oh, the Rams are falling apart and, and Stafford might still be hurt. You know, you can be, what, what are you going to be, seven and three? when the Niners, Cowboys, Niners, Eagles thing happens, you know, and so you can be seven and three and, you know, hopefully not be seven and seven after all that goes down. And I'll say this, you know, I, I, on my social network, some, some Seahawks fans kind of popped in on my threads and my Twixter and, mm -hmm. and, and everything else. And, you know, they're like, yeah, you know, this isn't going to happen. Let's blow it up. Let's tank. Let's tank. Gino's never going to be the answer that, you know, some of the other guys are older and you can advocate tanking. If you want, if you advocate tanking, I want you to watch two Giants games. Ugh. 
I, I want Seahawks fans who are upset with the team being five and three yeah. to watch the Giants. Remember, the Giants last year were a surprise team too. Seahawks were surprised. Giants were surprised. Geno Smith was a surprise. Daniel Jones was a surprise. If you think the grass will be greener next year if you got rid of everybody, that's great. Go watch a really bad team on Sunday. You will yeah. want every Sunday will be like this last Sunday was. But worse, you will want to go rake leaves. You'll want to go holiday shopping. You will not want to watch that team. That's what you're up against. At least the Seahawks right now have young players, have an organization that seems like it has their head on uh, their shoulders, and can come out of this this year with 10 wins, 11 wins, and a playoff berth. Yeah, I mean, tanking for the Seahawks would be stupid. Two years ago, maybe yeah. you could make that argument, right? But they've, 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 yeah. they've, they've added some really good young players. Um, they've got a head coach in Pete Carroll that has accomplished a lot in the game of football. John Schneider, the general manager as well. But I think the question that's that's hanging over everyone's head is mm-hmm. what is Geno Smith? And if mm-hmm. you don't think he can take you all the way, what do you do about it? <laughs> right. And, and, and that's one of those existential questions where, you know, the we reach this point in the season and we say Mahomes can do this for the chiefs. Even when other things don't work, you know, now Hertz can do this for the Eagles. Joe Burrow can do this for the Bengals. Geno Smith will not be able to do those sorts of things. And you know, the, the, the San Francisco 49ers have an answer to that. You know, uh, how, how does Geno Smith compare against Jimmy Garoppolo for many years or Brock Purdy at this point? And can you still do things? And that's probably how in the short term, the Seahawks have to operate. It's not, Find the replacement for uh, uh, for Geno. It's find Debo, find McCaffrey. Get the left tackles and the right tackles settled and healthy and get those young guys back out there. You know, you've added Leonard Williams. Build that defense. Build some of those defensive guys. Devin Witherspoon's coming around. Build that team and then ask the question, can Dak be, you know, a better version of Garoppolo or a better version of Purdy or some of the, some of these other quarterbacks who do rise up and take these teams on deep playoff runs. And that's how you have to approach it for the next year or two. We're speaking to Mike Tannier from the messenger, our NFL insider, our Monday morning quarterback here on the Halford and Brush show on Sportsnet 650. Mike is brought to you by the Clayton public house pregame to postgame. The Clayton public house is your home of football. Catch all the action on 15 screens and two giant projectors. Visit them online at the Clayton Okay. I want to run around some of these other stories here. Uh, the early game on Sunday from Frankfurt, uh, this is a game in which yeah. you, Jason, you hit your lock of the week yet again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you took the, took the Chiefs to cover. Yeah. Um, now, I think there's an interesting thing here at play with Miami, because when you talk about measuring stick games, it seems like every time they get one against a good team, they can't win. Can the Dolphins actually beat a good team with the way that they play and the way that they're designed to play? I, in my walkthrough at the Messenger, I call them the Harlem Globetrotters. Right, right, right. If it stands there and watches, they can dribble the ball off your head and spin the ball on their finger and run the weave and pull your pants down if they if the opponent just stands there. And you know what would the Harlem Globetrotters do if they played like a real NBA team? They would get destroyed because that's not how the game is actually played. That's trickery, and and you know those guys would be in the NBA, frankly, if they were that good because. They're- in the NBA than the Globetrotters, and that's kind of where the Dolphins are at this point. And I don't know what the answer is, but I do look at the way they do their offense, and it's like 16 guys in motion, and everything's a double reverse. And, you know, that stuff isn't always 
designed to work in a nitty-gritty, grimy game against the Eagles or against the Chiefs or against the Bills. or The other teams, they have to be on the road to the Super Bowl. That's the kind of thing that, you know, Alabama runs against Appalachian State or whatever. And they don't downshift into the other kind of football very well. They also seem to get rattled. They seem to get rattled when they're trailing. They seem to get rattled where there's a lot of crowd noise. There was a lot of noise in Frankfurt. They were committing false starts and motion penalties and fumbling snaps. The same thing happened at Buffalo. The same thing happened at Philadelphia. So the Dolphins really have to look at this because this is not this is a kind of a win now Super Bowl team. If you yeah. look at how they're constructed, Tua does not have a long term contract right now. Uh, they they have to figure this out and they have to figure it out in the weeks to come. Good news for the Dolphins. Bye, Raiders, beatable Jets team, obviously, Commanders. They've got some other wins where they can do their globetrotter routine and build their resume and hope that they're figuring things out for how, they fa- how they'll face better opponents along the way. Mike, did the Buffalo Bills peak in 2020 and 2021 and just not yes. get past the Chiefs? Is that, like, is that yes. what we're talking about right now? Yes, next question. It, it, <laughs> it really is. You know, Stephon Diggs is 30 now, and he's disgruntled, and he's still playing at a high level, but, you know, that's that's that. Poyer is in his 30s. Hyde is in his 30s. You look along their lines, the guys in their late 20s. Everybody is coming off their best season, not about to have their best season. And that's why I think we're looking at the Bills and our priors on them, and, yes, that one really good win against the Dolphins and saying, this is still that team, and I don't think it is anymore. And they and they don't they don't get a lot from their second tier talent. There's nobody really behind Diggs in the receiver core that scares anyone. Nobody along the defensive line pass rush is that guy now that Von Miller is older. They cut they, they suffer a couple of injuries on defense and you know, that's all we hear about. You know, they're so banged up on defense. I don't want to hear run every team's injury report. Run every team's injury report. And say, say, where do the Bills rank in terms of injuries? And, and they're not going to be in the top five. They might not make. They, how, they might not make the playoffs. Gonna, like they, they got. They might not make. Yeah, they got some tough games. Yeah, they're okay. at Philly, at KC. They got Dallas at home. They finished the season at Miami. Like they may not make the playoffs. They are two and four in the AFC. Okay, they are one and two in division. Right. So if it becomes a tiebreaker thing, if they're a ten win team, they could tiebreaker their way out of the playoffs, and that's. Stunning, and that's stunning. But I think they keep telling us, you know, we're not really that good. They keep saying that every week, and we still and we keep talking about jet lag, <laughs> you know, or or you know, the play calling is this or that. Well, the play calling isn't great. It's it's just not really that great a team. Uh, we're speaking to Mike Tannier from the Messenger, our NFL insider here on the Halford and Brough Show on Sportsnet 650. Uh, Mike, it is not often that we talk about the Houston Texans on this program for a variety of reasons, mm-hmm. most of which is that the Houston Texans have been largely irrelevant, at least to us anyway. But I think yeah. we have to start paying attention now. C.J. Stroud, for those that missed it on Sunday, uh, a mere 470 yards <laughs> passing and five touchdowns in a game, a win over Tampa Bay. Now, I saw a couple people very astutely pointing out that this offseason, not only did Houston get a franchise quarterback, but they might have got a franchise coach, too, because they are playing very well and very hard for D'Amico Ryans. Is there any team in the NFL that has reversed its fortunes more in a short window than Houston? No, they're not. In fact, I'm putting midterm grades together for the NFL, for the messenger, and the, and the Texans get an A+. Plus. And I still rank it as Ryan's number one in terms of importance and Stroud number two. Okay. Stroud had a couple of games where he looked like a rookie over the last few weeks. I just pulled it up right now, and at halftime yesterday, he had 
145 yards, one touchdown. There was a dropped interception and two sacks, and the uh, and the and the Texans trailed 17 to 10. So it's not just if you miss that game. If you miss the fourth quarter of that game, that's where Stroud lights it up. But top to bottom, Stroud, you know, uh, Will Anderson, the, um, the the edge rushers played well. Tank Dell, the receiver, has played well. All of these other guys that you don't think of as superstars are playing lights out under D'Amico Ryan's, and that's a strong team. So I look at the at the Texans like they might get a wild card this year, which will be great, exciting for the franchise. Good for them. Next, mm-hmm. whatever team, and everyone's saying, "Look at them," or, or, or I guess maybe where the Jaguars are now. Look at them. Watch out for them. They're the team on the rise. And that's shocking when you consider how bad they were the two or three previous years. So um, did the Carolina Panthers blow it by the, then? Did they, they pick the wrong guy? I don't think it's so much they picked the wrong guy. I and mean, people just want to bury. People want to anoint Stroud and bury Young right now. And Stroud looks very good. And Young is very wobbly. You look at what the Panthers are doing. They have nothing on offense. Their offensive line is a mess. Their defense does the offense no favors because they, you know, they they can't stay off the field. And I, I look at Frank Reich and I just wonder, what are you running offensively for this young man? Every young quarterback needs scaffolding. They need support. When you watch Stroud, there's a lot of screen passes, a lot of quick throws, a lot of opportunities there to just get yak. Kind of kind of the things that the, the 49ers do with their uh, quarterbacks. There's almost none of that. In Carolina, when it does happen, teams sniff it out. So I don't think that the, the, the supporting cast for Young is, is very good, and I'm really wondering about what Frank Reich is doing there because it's not so much that they picked the wrong guy, but they created the whole, the whole wrong environment in which to develop a guy. Um, we were talking earlier in the show about how much we like a good old-fashioned tire fire. We focus mostly on the hockey <laughs> ones, but I try to keep my eye on the football ones too. The New York Giants, and I know you alluded to this earlier, I can't think – of this season going any worse after all the optimism from last year, this is a disaster. Now, again, for those that missed it, Daniel Jones is feared to have torn his ACL. It was a non-contact injury. If you see the replay, it does not look good. And this is just adding on to a season that has been an abject disaster. My question for you is what do you do if you're the New York giants moving forward? I have no idea. Yeah. Somebody asked me that in my, in the mailbag column I wrote last Mm -hmm. week. And it's like, well, you know, you get Daniel Jones back. He's not a great quarterback, but you know, he's a professional, and you can you can start evaluating other guys, and you get your offensive linemen healthy, and you try to evaluate your receivers. And, and the Giants' defense had been playing well the last couple of games, and, you know, try to get the seven wins and, and, and make sure that the young players develop. Now, no idea. you got to realize Daniel Jones is out for the year. Uh, Tyrod Taylor is out for several weeks. This kid – Tommy DeVito, I, I don't even. I'm sorry, I don't want to like you know rip some undrafted rookie. Yeah, he he he, he belongs in uh, the USFL or something like that. They do they do have Matt Barkley at the bottom of their bench. He, they signed him two weeks ago. He'll probably be the starter for a couple of weeks. It's almost impossible to imagine that team accomplishing anything except getting a top five draft pick out of this. And you know we talked about tanking and all. That's not all that is cracked up to be, frankly. Do they go after a quarterback in the draft? I mean, if you're in the top five, you have to. Yeah. The way Daniel Jones's contract is structured, he'd be expensive next year, and then they could move on the following year. So they could definitely bring the other guy in and say, oh, well, we're paying Daniel Jones. He's the starter. The other guy comes in week four, whatever, and do that routine. So if they finish in the bottom five, that's the most logical way to go. If Arizona uh, gets the first overall pick, do they go with a quarterback? or like What's their situation with Kyler? Are they so locked in with him that they wouldn't go with a quarterback? I don't know how 
they're approaching Kyler Murray, who's about to be healthy. There's been no word about him dogging it. There's been no disgruntlement. He's been rehabbing. He's been in the building. Everyone's saying the right things. Um, you know, so so I would, if I'm running this team, I try to get Kyler out, Murray out there for a few weeks and appraise where he's at mm-hmm. and try to get a couple of wins because you have a former number one overall pick, a guy who made Pro Bowls, who was rookie of the year level guy. He's there. You know, and you don't just say, hey, uh, who wants the Vikings? You want this guy? Because we're going to go get the next guy, uh, even <laughs> though we haven't really done a full evaluation on this guy. That, that said, you know, I wouldn't do that. It's an entirely new administration there with new coach and a new front office. They could do anything. And, uh, you know, I, I think one thing you have to watch out for is uh, the Cardinals do have two top ten picks. Yeah. So they could do probably. Well, they have a number. One, they have a top pick, and then they have the Texans. That might be a top twenty-five pick or something at this point. They can do a lot in the draft if they say there's one guy. Even if they're not at the bottom of the draft order, they could trade up and get that guy, and then figure out what to do with Kyle Kyler Murray. Mike, you're the best, bud. Thanks for doing this. We appreciate it. Enjoy Monday Night Football. We'll do this again next week. You got it. Take care and enjoy your week. You too. Thank you. That's Mike Tannier, our NFL insider from the Messenger here on the Halford and Brough Show on Sportsnet 650. So I just want to throw this out there to give you an idea of how quickly things change in the NFL. Daniel Jones mm-hmm. signed a four-year, $160 million contract in March. Well, good for him for getting his money. Months ago. Yeah. And in the eight months that have followed, Daniel Jones... Might be done. Might be done as the Giants quarterback. Mm-hmm. Kyler Murray in October of 2022, so just over a year ago, signed a five-year, $230 million contract. Both of those teams, Arizona and the New York Giants, could be drafting quarterbacks in next year's draft. Well, like That's I how mean, fast things change. When it comes to the Seahawks, Geno signed a three-year extension. And- he might not be the quarterback next season, the way things are going. Like, life moves quickly if you're a quarterback in the NFL. And because the prospect of getting C.J. Stroud is always on the horizon. Mm-hmm. And this year, it's Caleb Williams and Michael Penix. Yeah, there's a couple of other, other guys. I don't, think other Pen- guys. I don't think Penix is going to be a high pick. No. I mean, he could be a starter in the NFL for somebody. Yeah, at some stage, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm mostly alluding to the fact that they played each other mm-hmm. on the weekend, and that yeah. was another big story. I think we'll get into that and uh, what we learned. That's coming up well, I, in how, the final hour of the program. I mean, I just listen. I've been critical of Geno Smith, and Pete Carroll is concerned about all the turnovers. It's eight turnovers in the last four games yeah. for for Geno Smith, whether they're interceptions or, or fumbles. But that loss against the Ravens was a wholesale loss. Like it was on everyone. It was on the defense. It was on the offense. It was on the quarterback. It was on the offensive line. Um, you know, you're watching that game and you're like, Geno has no time here. So he has no time. And Pete Carroll said afterwards, like, I don't think this is about Geno at all. I think this is about our football team did not answer the bell here. Mm -hmm. And I think the Ravens are a very, very good team. Um, Another team that Baltimore took care of in big, big time business. I sound like Dollywood. Big time win. Big time. Like two weeks ago, they beat the Detroit Lions 38 to six. They they whipped on them. Yeah. They're just a very, very good team. But I think it says something about the Seahawks. I think the Seahawks, I think, are what we think they are. They're good, but they're not great. So how do they get great? That's well, the big question. So it's funny. I told you I was listening to the postgame show, which right here, you're home of the Seahawks, Sportsnet 650. And they were bemoaning 
bemoaning how physically manhandled the Seahawks were on Sunday. They're like they, on, on both sides of the yeah, ball. Yeah, they're like, they just got the punched in the mouth yep. repeatedly by a team. Now, look, I mean, everyone knows Baltimore's mo and their identity is to be a very physical football team, but there was a sense that defensively with the guys that Seattle has and the way that they've been running around with Witherspoon and Adams and the acquisition of Leonard Williams and Bobby Wagner and, and Boy Mafe, who had a, a great game as well, that they were going to be able to respond in kind. Mm-hmm. They got flattened. Like yeah. that defense got, and they were tired. They were on the field too much, so they got worn down. But Baltimore just ran the ball down their throats, and that's alarming because in a game like that, you at least want to be able to make it somewhat difficult. That was a walk in the park for Baltimore. For me with the Seahawks, I'm like hoping we get a playoff game or two out of them. I expect nothing more than that. Well, they're going to be 6-3 and three next week. I think they're going to beat Washington. I don't know if well, it'll be a pretty victory, we'll but Washington's real bad. No, they're not. They're Wa- not. Washington they're, is real bad. They're not real bad. They just they're traded not. away two of their best pass rushers. <laughs> they are Real bad should be reserved for the likes of Arizona and the New York Giants. So I don't think the commanders... Anyway, I'm not going to fight with you over the Washington commanders. Randeep is going to join us next to talk a little Canucks on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet.